Well, we're coming to the end of our time in the books of Samuel. I think we have one more sermon after this. And then Chad and I have talked about spending some time in the Gospel of Mark as we progress through Lent and get closer to Easter. And so when we last left David, his son Absalom had taken the throne and David was running for his life. And he's able to make it across the Jordan and he's able to regroup thanks to a little help from his friends. And now it's time for the battle. Now it's time for him to face Absalom, the rebel. But before we get into the text tonight, I want you to try to put yourself in David's place. You know that this whole mess, Tamar's rape, Amnon's murder, Absalom's rebellion, and your own exile has happened as a consequence of your sin. God said through Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And the sword is carving up David's house. God's fully forgiven David, and God's with David. He was with him to help him escape. But the consequences of his sin that he's living through are just brutal. And in this section, David seems greatly diminished, just kind of a shell of his former self. And that's because he's bearing the fruit of his sin. But, and this is very important, he is still the king. He is still the king. In this section, you don't see the name David very often. Over and over again, you see the king, the king, the king. For example, in chapter 18, David is mentioned by name five times. However, the king is used 24 times. So pay attention to this as we go, because I think this is the writer's way of communicating two things. First, Absalom has made himself king. He's calling himself king, but he's not the real king. He's a pretend king. And number two, no matter how broken David is, no matter how unkingly he seems, he is still the king, and his word is to be obeyed. And the climactic battle is about to begin, so turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18. That's where we'll start. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. So one way to read this is that David is a warrior. So he naturally wants to go out and fight. He wants to be with his men as they go out and take battle. But he's probably about 60 years old at this time. And his men worried that he could get killed, so they overrule him. That's one way that we could read this. But another way that we could read this is that David might be a little concerned about what his men might do to Absalom when they defeat him. And if he rides out with them, 
then he might be able to arrange things so that Absalom is defeated, but he doesn't die. To me, that makes the best sense because of what David says next in verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. That's some ominous foreshadowing. Why would the writer record that the people heard David's order about Absalom? Unless that order is not going to be followed. Because Joab and Abishai and Ittai, they don't think of Absalom as the king's son necessarily. They think of him like the rebel that he is, the one who stole the hearts of the people of Israel and the one who stole the throne. He's an enemy in need of killing. He doesn't need gentle treatment. And you know what? They're not wrong because that's who Absalom is. He is a rebel. But still, David is the king. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom sounds like a request. It sounds like a please. But David is the king, and he's giving an order. And he should expect that that order is going to be followed. Verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. These are 20,000 Israelites. These aren't Philistines. These aren't Ammonites. These aren't the typical enemies of the people of Israel. These are 20,000 of the people of God. And they die because the sword's not only devouring David's house, but it's also devouring God's people. And then verse 8, which is perhaps my favorite verse in this whole section. The battle spread out over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. What does that even mean, that the forest devoured more people than the sword? It's crazy. I picture trees rising up like the last march of the Ents in the Lord of the Rings and attacking Absalom's men and defeating them. The more likely explanation is not nearly as interesting, and so I'm just not going to bother with it. We're going to go on to verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. In the Bible, hair symbolizes glory. Remember Samson, his glory was his hair. That was his strength. In chapter 14, we're told that Absalom used to cut his hair every year, and when he cut it, his hair weighed 200 shekels. And I don't know exactly what a shekel amounts to, but it's still it's 200 of something, so that's a lot of hair. But now his glory has him suspended between heaven and earth. His hair, his glory is his undoing. Also at this time, kings rode upon mules. Mules were like royal vehicles. And so the mule going on without Absalom symbolizes that his short reign as a pretend king is now over. Verse 10. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. Look what Joab does. He blasts the man for not killing Absalom, even though he knows 
that David asked him to deal gently with Absalom for his sake. He wants Absalom dead, but he doesn't want to get his own hands dirty. Joab is not to be trusted. And fortunately, this nameless man knows this. He says, But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So David had ordered his commanders to deal gently with Absalom for his sake. Yet Joab just disregards the order and kills Absalom. This is the second time that Joab has killed somebody that David didn't want killed. He killed Abner in chapter 3. He kills Absalom here. And in chapter 20, he'll kill Amasa, who is another David appointee. Joab is a murderer, and he seems to do whatever he wants and get away with it. But he will get his due. Unfortunately for us, he gets it in the book of Kings, which we're not going to study together. But you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 2. Moving on, verse 19. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimeaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Joab knows that David might not heed the saying, Don't shoot the messenger. He might hear the news of Absalom's death and take it out on Ahimeaz. In fact, in one translation, Joab tells him, yours is not welcome news. The Cushite seems more expendable. Since there won't be any reward for delivering the news, Ahimeaz shouldn't be so eager to go, but he doesn't listen. He wants to go anyway. We're told that David is sitting between two gates, just waiting for the news. And that should remind us of old Eli, the high priest, at the beginning of the book of Samuel, waiting for news of the battle because he trembled for the ark of God. Eli was sitting and waiting when he heard that his two sons had died. And David is trembling for his son, and he's about to get similar news. Verse 28. Then Ahimeaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against the Lord my king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimeaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood, and stood still. Ahimeaz loses his nerve. 
He probably didn't expect that David's first question was going to be about Absalom. He might have figured that David would celebrate the victory, that he would see it as good news. Now he gets to return to Jerusalem as king. The threat is over. But as soon as he hears the news, he asks, is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimeaz chickens out. And then the Cushite arrives, and he obviously does not know how to read the room. Verse 31, And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for, the Lord, for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is now the third son of David's who has preceded him in death. His first child with Bathsheba, Amnon, and now Absalom. The sword has again devoured within David's house. And he says, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David's grief is very deep. Absalom had wanted David dead, but David laments Absalom's death. And while it should be a day of victory, it becomes a day of mourning because the king is mourning. Well, this angers Joab, who gives David, the king, a thorough dressing down. And he says something to the effect of, if we had all died and Absalom had lived, you would be happy. You don't care about us at all. And he threatens David, who is the king. And he says that if David doesn't go and speak kindly to the men, they're all going to quit. And the army is going to be disassembled. It's almost like David is not the king, at least not in Joab's eyes. But David doesn't respond to Joab. And he doesn't speak to the men. He takes his seat in the gate like a broken man. One commentator says, this is a man beaten to a pulp who can barely stand and does only the minimum requested or expected of him. About 30 years ago, Tom Petty wrote a song called It's Good to Be King. Honestly, I think David would disagree. I don't know if David's experience as king was something that he terribly enjoyed. The rest of the section tells of David's slow return to Jerusalem. And on his way back, he comes to Bahurim, which is where a man named Shimei had hurled stones and insults at him. You remember that? And remember how Abishai had wanted to kill Shimei for disrespecting the king. But David had said, no, don't kill him because maybe God has sent him to curse me. Well, now Shimei comes out. Verse 16 of chapter 19 and Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day 
the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down and meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. But Shimei will get his due. Unfortunately for us, that comes in the book of Kings, which again, we're not studying. And you could read about it in 1 Kings chapter 2. David goes godfather in 1 Kings chapter 2. Gets vengeance on several enemies. On his way back to Jerusalem, David also sees Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. And David had not only spared his life before, but invited him to eat at his table every day. But Mephibosheth's servant Ziba had lied that Mephibosheth was glad that David was in exile. He was glad that David was on the run. And that's why Mephibosheth didn't go with David. Verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided, you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all since my lord the king has come safely home. David had given Ziba all of Mephibosheth's land. And now instead of taking it all back and giving it back to Mephibosheth, he splits it between them. Why does he do that? I think it's pretty clear that Ziba was lying. I think David just doesn't know who to believe. I think he's so beaten down, he doesn't know who he can trust. And I think in his fatigue, he goes for the easy option of just splitting the land down the middle. Later on, when Solomon, his son, is king, he will not take the easy option. When two prostitutes lay claim to the same baby, Solomon will also suggest to just split it right down the middle. But he will do that to reveal who the real mother actually is. Well, we have the same thing here. Like the baby's real mother, Mephibosheth shows his faithfulness to David by saying, oh, let him take it all. The land is of no concern. I don't care about it, since my lord, the king, has come safely home. At the beginning of chapter 20, David returns to Jerusalem, but all is not well there. There's a civil war in the making, thanks to a worthless man named Sheba. He rallies the ten tribes of Israel to fight Judah, but his rebellion is put down thanks to another nameless woman, 
Women frequently save the day in Judges and in Samuel. And she saves the day, the rebellion's put down, and David is reinstated as king. And at the end of chapter 20, which ends this long section of David's exile and return, we get a list of David's commanders, his officials, and his priests. And we had a similar list at the end of chapter 8. And it's a sign from the writer that now everything is back to normal for David in Jerusalem. The crisis has come, and it's passed, and David is still the king. So I want to end by focusing on three ways in which David points ahead to Jesus. And the first one is that David knew that he was king, even if nobody else did. When David spared Shimei, he said, Do I not know this day that I am king over Israel? In other words, do I have to put this man to death just to prove that I am really the king? I know that I'm king, and that's enough. Of course, hardly anybody in this section actually treats David like he is the king. His commanders don't let him ride out to the battle with him. Joab disregards his command to not kill Absalom. And Judah, his own tribe, doesn't immediately take him back to Jerusalem. And David could have said, this is how I show that I'm really the king. And just strike Shimei down on the spot. But he doesn't. Instead, he expresses his kingship through mercy. Through extending mercy to Shimei, who certainly does not deserve it. Sparing Shimei reminds us of Saul in his early and better days. Sparing Shimei reminds us of the Father's mercy toward us. Jesus certainly knew that he was king, even if no one else did. Look at John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew that he was the Jewish Messiah who was the Lord of the whole world. And so he washed his disciples' feet. He didn't wash his disciples' feet despite the fact that he was the Jewish Messiah and Lord of the whole world. He washed his disciples' feet because he was those things. That's what the office of king is meant to do. It's meant to serve. And while David points ahead to Jesus, in a weird way, so does Absalom here. Absalom gets caught by his hair and is suspended between heaven and earth. But he's a pretend king. He's a usurper. He's an Adam who, reb who rebels in the garden and just spreads death. In ascending the cross, Jesus is also suspended between heaven and earth. But he is no pretend king. He is the second Adam who does everything that his father commands and brings life. He is the true king. Amen. Number two, David pardoned his enemies. I'm thinking mainly of Shimei. 
It's one thing for David to say, perhaps God sent him to curse me when he was on his way out of Jerusalem, when there was a, a real question about whether he was going to make it through. But it's another to come back victorious and spare Shimei again. There is nothing for us to like about Shimei at all. There's no reason for us to want David to spare him. We'd like for David to say, in honor of the late Toby Keith, how do you like me now? Right before relieving him of his head. But that's not what the king does. And that's not what great David's greater son does either. Jesus could have rained curses on his enemies from the cross. Or when he was raised from the dead, he could have tracked down every Pharisee, every chief priest, every Roman soldier and Pontius Pilate himself and made them pay. But he didn't. Instead, after they crucified him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. There's nothing for us to like about the Pharisees or the chief priests or the Roman soldiers or Pilate. We'd like to see them get what they've got coming. Isn't it a wonderful thing that Jesus is king? And we're not. And finally, David mourned his enemies. And I'm not just thinking of Absalom, his son, but I'm also thinking of Saul. You know, when Saul and Jonathan died, David wrote a lament, and he insisted that everyone in Judah learn this song and sing it. He mourned the deaths of people who wanted to kill him. When Absalom dies, he cries, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Flash forward to Jesus in Jerusalem just days before his death. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? and you are not willing. Absalom, Absalom, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Would I had died instead of you? How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing? Jesus alludes to when there's a farmyard fire, the hen gathers her brood under her wings, and when the fire is passed, the hen is dead, but all her brood is alive kept safe under her wings. Jesus desired to gather God's people to him under his wings so that when Rome did its worst to the people of God, it would fall entirely upon him. In effect, he echoes David, would I had died instead of you, but they were not willing. Jesus mourns for what will happen later to this rebellious people when Rome comes in and overthrows the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 even though he knows that they will kill him before that happens. Jesus pardoned his enemies and he mourned his enemies. And he could do that because he knew that he was the true king. In Revelation, John says that we have been made a kingdom of priests. We too are kings. And therefore, we too can pardon those who hurt us and we can mourn those who are destroying themselves with the hatred that they have for us. That's the authority that we're given as kings, to pardon, to mourn, and to serve, never to hate in return. Let's stand for prayer.